Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of For What It's Worth podcast. Uh, I'm moving fast this morning. I just got off my bike. I got up at 5 o'clock this morning and uh, read for an hour, as I normally do while I'm drinking my coffee. I'm reading the first of a trilogy of books about Africa uh, by an author who's considered someone who kickstarted the entire literary genre from Africa. So it's pretty interesting. I've been a bit distracted. It has been such a busy past couple of weeks. Uh, if you haven't seen the news about Blurb, just Google Blurb Books and you'll see what I'm talking about. Been, there's been quite a development over the last week. Uh, it has greatly complicated uh, our lives for the past, I don't know, it's been going on for a while. But uh, Blurb is hectic on a good day and it's been especially hectic over the past few weeks and months. So uh, anyway, all good news. Um, but uh, yeah, I got off of my bike, didn't even 20 miles this morning. And uh, that's a really good number for me because I can go hard for 20 miles and it's beautiful and I'm riding just as the sun is coming over the Sangres. It's cool out. There's very few people. Um, I need new components on my bike in a, in a bad way. My bike needs a tune-up in the worst way. I bought this bike, the Salsa Fargo Titanium. I bought it in 2000, at either the end of 2013 or the beginning of 2014. So I've basically had it this entire time. It's never been tuned up. It has original cables. It has original components. I've never done anything, and I certainly don't know how to do it myself. The bar tape looks horrible. The bar tape has come unraveled so many times. I just gave up trying to put it on correctly, and now I'm like holding bare handlebar half the time. But it doesn't matter. I got out for a ride. It was a great day. I have an amazing lineup of points this week, but you might be wondering if you're new to this podcast for what it's worth. You're like, Jesus, how could I have gotten through my life without listening to Milner ramble about topics that no one asked him to talk about? Well, who is this podcast for? You know, you're supposed to have a hook in the first 30 seconds, right? You're supposed to do everything you're supposed to do with the podcast. I don't. So if you're waiting for it, you're going to be waiting. But who is this for? This podcast is for anyone who wears dress pants and white high tops. Now, that combination is very particular. Um, I'm not a fan of those loose khaki slacks, those wrinkle f wrinkle-free loose khaki slacks that older white men typically wear. Uh, including my father, and that's why I am. I'm saying this: if you're, if that's your combo, if you get up in the morning and you put on baggy, dad pleated, wrinkle-free khaki slacks, and you look into the floor of your closet and you see those enormous, cheap New Balance white high tops, and you go, you know what? I think this will be a good combination. This podcast is for you. And the reason I say that is my father used to wear that outfit, he, and it dawned on me in the middle of a bike ride about two or three weeks ago, I had this flashback. My father had probably the least amount of fashion sense of any human being to ever walk the face of the earth. I've already told you about his speedo tendencies, but he would wear these baggy pants with them pulled all the way up. And he would wear these cheap white running, technically, you know, runners, but they're not runners. They're just terrible. If anyone ran in these, they'd probably get plantar fasciitis in like five minutes. They're just cheap. You buy them at like Walmart or something and they're terrible looking. They're horrible. And he would wear that. And we had this little symbol in our house, which was, imagine me, oh, I'm sitting, I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm wearing a towel right now. That's all I'm wearing. But imagine me sitting here. I have my right index finger pointed straight up. And now I'm making little circles with my right index finger. My father would come out of the, his bedroom and in an outfit that was just horrendous. And none of us had to say anything. All we had to do was stick our finger up in the air and make little circles. And that meant 
turn around and go back in there and put something else on. And he would. He wouldn't even say a word. He would just turn around with this dejected look on his face. So if that's your combo, this podcast is for you. The hero of the week, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The hero of the week is Canadian, again, because all of my heroes are Canadian. This week, it's Sasquatch. And I know that some of you might think that Sasquatch is American, but he's not. Um, But I'm going to use Sasquatch in past tense because I do have some bad news. Sasquatch is Canadian. Uh, and he is my hero of the week. I should say maybe he was my hero of the week because Sasquatch was killed for um, trying to enforce the mask rule at a Walmart here in the United States. Yes, it was in one of the bordering states here in the north, but he was, uh, he was trying to enforce the mask rule and a redneck plugged him. So he's down. Sasquatch is down and no more. So we really don't have to have any TV shows or anything more about him or books or crazy people faking sightings. Okay. Question of the week. Before I get to, I've got a ton of points. We're going to do speed dating this week on these points because I've got so many. The question of the week is, do you think Earth's, I mean the planet Earth, current standing and the current debacle that we have here on planet Earth, and I'll put America right in the center of that debacle. I think we deserve it more than anyone else. We're, We're definitely not handling things particularly well here in the United States at the moment. But do you think that our current standing has driven all other intelligent life in the galaxy, universe, and solar system away. So it's like, I, this is what I equate this question to. So imagine your intelligent life, and you're, you've been beaming around the Earth, outer parts of the Earth, you know, showing up here in places like New Mexico. You know, we're famous for alien sightings. But you look down now in the middle of the pandemic and the debacle that is the American politics and everything else, and you go, you know what? I think I'm going to pass. I think I'm going to go to that other planet that's a little farther out. I would equate this to driving on a U.S. interstate, and you pass a truck stop, and you take one slow drive-by of the truck stop, and you go, there's no way in hell I'm using that bathroom I think that's what intelligent life in the galaxy is probably thinking when they skirt Earth right now. Like, just don't make any quick movements and just keep going because there's probably another rock out there with water on it that's probably doing a little better than we are. That was my question of the week. Okay, let's move on to the points because by now you guys are all so engrossed in this that uh, you're probably holding your breath. Take a deep breath. Let's move on. Okay, I heard someone the other day online, someone I respect promoting a, uh, it's an app or something, I don't know what it is, company slash app slash was service that was about, it was a, a company that takes a book, any book, primarily nonfiction, and basically condenses it into a 15 minute pellet, right? Like a food pellet. Like we all thought when we watched the Jetsons as kids that by now we would just be eating food pellets. We wouldn't need actual food. I have a real problem with this. An author spends X amount of time putting together a book, a nonfiction book. Let's say a book about Africa or a book about Central America or a book. Let's take Christopher Dickey's book on the war in Nicaragua, right? Dickey went into the field and spent X amount of time doing these books, put his life at risk to do these books, wrote into the nuance of of his life as a correspondent and then the story at hand. These apps are, are coming and saying, well, we're all too busy to read. So let me just take this and condense it down into a 15-minute nugget so that if you are too busy to actually pay attention to what the author was trying to get across, you can still get a 
let's just, let's face it, cheap ass version of this book. Because here's the other part that that no one has mentioned about these apps is who's monitoring how they're condensing the material. What would stop me if I, let's say that I had a right wing agenda or a left wing agenda or any other kind of agenda, and I condense the book into an app, who's to say that I'm condensing it realistically or truthfully? But here's the other point, is if you're too busy, if you can't read a book and you're too busy, it means that you're inefficient, that the system, you're, you're currently living your, your life by an inefficient system. Now, the, the exception to the rule is if you are a parent that has multiple kids and in the middle of a pandemic and your kids are, may or may not be going to school, your life is upside down, there are plenty of reasons why someone would be too busy to read a book. The people that I'm speaking to are the people who have artificially cluttered their lives and, and, and being busy is now a competitive sport. It's a bragging right of how little sleep you get, how overworked you are, how many hours a week you're putting in. That has become a badge of honor now, which is a very strange thing. 99% of the people who do this are do it, are, can't read a book because of their inefficiency. If you are efficient, you should not have this problem. And two, if you do have the problem, just cut your workload in half. I can almost guarantee you that you're doing too much. You're biting, you're biting off too much. And if you cut your task list in, list in half and focused on quality over quantity, you'd probably do a better job. So I'm not a fan of these condensed book apps where you it just – and I feel bad for the author. It would be like me doing a photo essay for five years and you looking at three images on your phone and saying, yeah, I got it. I got it. Thanks. Got it. And that's what's happening all the time. So I'm not a fan of these. Uh, point number two, Greg Popovich, the coach of the San Antonio Spurs, very interesting scenario here. The Black Lives Matter, obviously, the movement has become very much a part of professional athletics in the, in the U.S. and around the world. I'm focusing primarily here in the U.S. because obviously I live here. I don't really follow sports much anymore. And every single day I see something that makes me sort of disgusted that comes out of the sports world. Today, there's a story about Colorado State University and someone in the football may or coaches may or may not have been urging players not to get tested for COVID and all kinds of weird stuff happening. There was a player, somebody shot at a party for an NFL player in Los Angeles. There's all kinds of funky stuff around sports. Popovich is someone I think is very intriguing. Popovich, if you don't know, is uh, the coach of the San Antonio Spurs and has been forever. He's a former military guy. He's very intelligent and he's very outspoken. Most coaches in professional and professional athletics are boring, predictable, and bought and paid for. They will say if if they do a press conference, you know what their answers are a hundred years before they do the press conference. They only talk in cliches, and they would never say anything that the owners of the team or the powers that be in the league, let's say a Roger Goodell, want them to say. They are bought and paid for. Regardless of fact, regardless of story, it's just pathetic, right? That's why I would never watch a press conference with a coach. Popovich, on the other hand, is outspoken and speaks his mind and has intelligent reasons why he says what he does. And so he was, like, for example, one of the only coaches to come out against Trump and just say, look, he's a buffoon. It's an embarrassment that he's our president, and I think every day we're reminded this. This I'm gonna another point I have here in a minute is about this interview that he did with Axios that Trump did with Axios, which was mind bending. But Popovich did not kneel when the Black Lives Matter movement sort of took over the beginning of the NBA season, where most players were wearing Black Lives Matter T-shirts, and they knelt, and everyone I think assumed that Popovich would kneel because of his views in the past his support of the minority community in basketball, his support of just uh, human rights in general. I mean, I think he has a pretty amazing track record. But he didn't. He stood. 
And I think this was a really interesting moment because everyone assumed he, he would. He, he would kneel, and he didn't. And it kind of shocked a lot of people. But to me, it was very important. And it's not just Popovich. But I think this is the, the key point, is conviction. Whatever your convictions are, you stand by it. Now, Popovich has a, has a record. It's easy for me to say that about him because I know what his record is prior to this moment. And I'm not knocking him for not kneeling. I just thought it was a peculiar uh, moment because everyone expected him to and he didn't. And I think that, that is a, it, makes, it makes you just stop for a second and rethink the entire idea and rethink your own convictions and thoughts and rationale behind things. And that's healthy. All I'm saying is this whole conversation, this whole movement is long overdue, uh, but it's healthy for us. It makes all of us like turn inward for a second and reconsider what our beliefs are. Okay, let's move on to something a little bit lighter. Point number one was these book condensing apps, which I don't like. Point two was the intrigue that is Greg Popovich. Uh, Point number three is about a bicycle. And I have not seen this bike. So I'm, I'm still riding my Salsa Fargo. I don't have any intention of getting rid of that bike anytime soon. I, I do have a second bike, which is a Bianchi D2 Carbon Cross cyclocross bike that I bought even longer ago. I think that bike is 11 years old, full carbon, incredibly light. It was a concept race bike from Bianchi that I got for half price, brand new. And uh, this was a, I wouldn't say this is a great bike. I think this is one of the Bianchis that's made in Taiwan. It's not like one of the great, you know, Italian made Bianchis. It was a cheaper, cheaper bike. Uh, and I, it had, the cables had snapped. It had been sitting, and a friend of mine out here in Santa Fe didn't have a bike. And I said, look, I'll get my bike fixed up for you, and you can either long term loan it, just take it and bring it back when you're done, or you can leave it here and we can ride together. And so we've been riding together a bit. And it's beautiful bike. It's it's probably less than half the weight of my salsa because my salsa ha- looks like a garage sale. There's stuff hanging all over it. The Bianchi's really light. It's got 40 mil gravel tires on it now. It's a really fun bike. My wife, on the other hand, rides a, just a beast of a bike that just looks horrible, right? And it's just rusted and broken and nothing works, but she likes it. And so I've been able, I, last summer I convinced her to try another bike. She rode another bike for a couple weeks, took it back. But now she realizes, okay, it's time to get a new bike. And she, of course, turns to me and is like, okay, Milner, you know, what are we going to get? So I, you know, I looked at Trex and, and Jameis and all these other bikes. But there's a new bike that came out that's not out quite yet, which is also by a company that I featured before called Priority. And I honestly don't know that much about Priority. They're a peculiar brand. You don't go into the store and buy them. You order them from, from, uh, from Priority. They ship you the bike, you assemble it, et cetera. And these are bikes that have pinion gearboxes, which is the gearbox designed by the, the former engineer at uh, Porsche in Stuttgart. And they have Gates carbon drives, et cetera, et cetera. So they came out with a new bike, which is it's a prototype, and there's somebody riding the Tour Divide route on the bike right now as sort of a demo of what the bike is capable of. But it, would, it is what they, I would call their adventure bike. So it's more of a mountain bike than anything they make right now. But there's a couple things about it I think are really great, and they could be really good for Amy. So it has mountain bike geometry. It has flat bars, and I'm sure you could put any kind of bar arrangement on it. If I got one for me personally, I would put drops on it, like I have on my salsa. I'd put wood cheppers, you know, flared drop bars on it. Uh, But this bike has a suspension fork with a lockout. It has a dyno hub, which means you have power continuously when the wheels are spinning. And I mean power for, like, your phone and for lights. So you can run lights all the time without recharging and charging your batteries all the time, which is what I have to do. I have to, after every ride, I pull the lights off my bike. I bring them inside, recharge them, put them back on. This has a dyno hub 
And it also has the pinion gearbox and the Gates carbon drive, which are really, really incredible components. Like this is a sort of the components for the rest of your life kind of thing. Very little maintenance, last forever, incredibly capable, durable. The frame to me is very basic. It's an aluminum frame, nothing special. The welds on the frame don't look particularly beautiful. When you talk about beautiful welds on a bike, you think about something like Moots out of Colorado. Those welds are remarkable. And I grew up on a ranch where people were welding, and our welds certainly didn't look anything like what you see on a Moots bike. Um, you know, like some bikes look like I welded them. And so it, I wouldn't say that the priority bike is necessarily like the highest level frame and, you know, perfect thing. It's just a really smart, designed, capable bike that I think she would like. Plus, it has lots of uh, mounts for bottles, racks, cages, fenders, all that kind of stuff, which I think will become very important to us the more time we spend in our van. So the Priority 600 is a bike, if you don't know about it, it's, not, it's called the 600X, and it's not out yet, but if you go to the Priority website, you'll see uh, one of their sponsored uh, athletes, uh, Ryan Van Duzer from Boulder, is out riding the Tour Divide <clears throat> on the bike right now, So, which is a route that I would love to do. I don't think I'm physically capable of doing it. I think I'd get three or four days into that, and I would just the Lyme disease would be like tapping me on the shoulder saying, uh, dude, what are you thinking? But the route looks incredible, and I would love to do it before the route doesn't exist anymore because that's coming. That is coming. For all you cyclists out there who are doing the Tour Divide route, my guess is in the next five years that will no longer be viable because it's gonna, parts of it will be owned by private landowners who are going to fence it off and say no more. That's my guess. Okay, um, I want to bring to your attention, and this I need to do a little research on here. I'm going to have to go to my email. The point, let me see here, beyond clothing, here we go. Okay, so you know my current ongoing second job, second full-time job is uh, AG23, the zine, right? Which has been really fun. I'm shipping it out. I got an email from a book publisher in on the East Coast this morning that said, oh my God, I got my package. I got my t-shirt. I got the zine. This, this looks fantastic. I love these projects that you do. The feedback from the zine has been really cool. And it's it's incredibly rewarding for me to promote the work of other people. Um, I have no dog in the hunt anymore for my own work. And so making a conscious decision to promote the work of other people is not a decision that a lot of people would make. I don't think especially photographers trying to promote other photographers, but it's been fun. And the only reason I've been able to do this is beyond clothing as the, as the collaboration partner has made it possible. You know, I've never in 11 years at Blurb, I've never had a collaboration partner even remotely like Beyond. So it's been good. So over the weekend, I got an email and, and Beyond is, a, is an interesting crew. Rick Elder is the director, and he's my partner in crime on AG23. And not, not, a, not your typical dude, right? A very, what I would call, complicated individual um, because of his education, his past, his present, and his, his skill set. Like, it's all over the place. He's, he's a pretty uh, – it makes me feel uh, inferior most of the time when I'm around him. So they launched a bunch of new initiatives at Beyond. And one of them in particular, they're, they're, they're all three environmental related, but uh, the first one is pretty interesting. And this is called the Beyond Pollinator Program. And I thought it was pretty interesting. Now, I would love more than anything to go to Seattle right now, but I can't really do that because of COVID. So I'm going to have to live vicariously through the emails. But this is what they did. They, Beyond installed a 60,000 bee active 
beehive in the middle of the Acropolis, which is what they call their corporate headquarters in Seattle. So when you walk into the corporate headquarters, there is a 60,000 bee active beehive in the middle of that. And the point was, there's a problem with bees. There's a problem with pollinators. And it's hard to fix the problem if you don't know about what the problem is or the actual item themselves. And in this case, we're talking about bees. So they installed this so that they could invite school kids and invite people in to understand how the bees are working. The second thing they did is the hang tags on their clothing are now crafted from lavender poppy seed paper, which I didn't even know was possible. One of the bees' favorite flowers for pollinating. And all you do is take a hang tag. So if you buy an article of clothing, you take a hang tag and plant it, and up will come pollinator plants, which is damn cool. And I can't imagine all the other brands not wanting to do something like this. So um, let, me, let me swap into the blog here really quick because there's a bunch of data on here that I did not know about the bees. And if I can find this, I should have done this before. Okay, but you know me, I've got like 400 other things to do and I've got a call here coming up, so I'm on a clock. Uh, okay, 80% of all known green plants alive today are flowering plants and 75 to 95% of those rely on pollinators. Birds, bats, butterflies, moths, beetles, wasps, small mammals, etc. Um, and we, if they go extinct, we're in, we're in serious trouble basically. So um, pollinator, their pollination is responsible for as many as one out of every three bites of food you take. Think about that. One out of every three is based on a pollinator. Doesn't that seem just absolutely fantastical that with all the high-tech crap that we have in the world, all the bragging about money and Hollywood and sport and everything, it hinges on a bee. It's crazy. Okay. Pollinators have been estimated as adding $217 billion to the global economy, and more than half of the Earth's dietary fats and oils are linked to these little babies. There are 200,000 different species of pollinator, but only about 1,000 are vertebrates. Um, the rest are, you know, non-vertebrates. And at the middle of this is the itty-bitty bee. There are 4,000 species of native bees here. And they're under threat, and they're under threat by a lot of things that we know about already, pesticides on crops, habitat loss, parasite invasions, etc. You have, you have CCD, colony collapse disorder. This is alarming, man. And if you drive the, uh, the I-5 in California, you drive up through the Central Valley, if you're not, you know, we kind of get numb to what's along the road, especially on a road like that, because it's not exactly the most exciting thing. But what you see are just colony after colony after colony of bees that are pollinating things like, you know, all the crops along that road. And we've all driven by this our whole lives, but until you start paying attention, it's pretty, pretty interesting. So d Beyond reached out, and they're not, Beyond is not like a team of expert on bees. And so they reached out to the Ceola Bee Company, the Puget Sound Beekeepers Association, and the American Beekeeping Federation to help them with the initiative, which is pretty damn cool. Now, the queen bee of this hive in particular at Beyond is called Queen Beatrice, how witty are these people? Come on. And she has her own Twitter account. So if you're into that kind of thing, if you're into that, what the kids are doing with the Twitter account, then you can join in. Uh, that's pretty damn cool. Okay. I hate to say it. Yes, they are a, a partner. And yes, um, you know, AG23 and I are linked to beyond. But that to me is a very cool thing. That's something that a company does not have to do. And by the way, installing a 60,000 beehive in the middle of the store, I can't imagine that being an easy operation or easy to maintain or anything else. So I just want to tip my hat for that because uh, 
we have been talking about doing a B feature in AG23 since before AG23 was actually, uh, the concept was proven. So we're just trying to find the right thing. I saw a piece on bees in the New York Times Magazine a couple of years ago. The lead photograph just stopped me in my tracks, and I thought, you know, as a as an individual, I don't know enough about bees. My neighbor here in Santa Fe is a beekeeper. I have photographed her and gone to the bees and you know put the bee suit on and, and been stung a few times going out with her. But I don't really know enough about it. So one of my goals in the near future is to get to beyond and actually get to photograph and film and learn a little bit more about these bees. So um, I just want to say good job for, on those guys and those people for uh, putting that together. Okay, something really funny happened. Um, funny in a sad and tragic way, but not, uh, not, not, not out of the question as of what's happening right now. So back in 95, and I think I mentioned this before, 95, I went to, or 96, I went to Alaska. And that is the one and only time I have been to Alaska. Now, I grew up in the country, and part of where I grew up as a kid was in rural Wyoming, and it was in a very pristine part of the state. Um, it's still relatively pristine there, but not what it was back when I was a kid. There were just a lot fewer people, a lot less development kind of thing. But it was, it was my sort of introduction to like, wow, this is wilderness. There's like no one here, and we need to protect this. Alaska was like Wyoming, but on, on, ex, on an exponential level. It was just beyond anything I had seen before. Uh, at one point, we got up in a small bush plane, and we flew up to the, you know, up to next to this, this massive line of mountains and then sort of found a little, uh, a little valley that we took the plane through and we cut through. And as we got in basically past this ridgeline, I looked out and there was just mountain after mountain after it just kept going to the horizon. So the scale of wilderness was remarkable. But as we know, it is all under threat. Because in particular, we have a, a, an administration now who's selling off private land as fast as possible. They're selling off mining rights. They are just drill, 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 anything. They don't care. The president's never been hiking, camping in the wild in his life. But ironically, his sons have. Um, there was a, a massive mine that just won approval in Alaska that's going to put a lot of fishing water in danger, right? It's a terrible idea to approve this mine. And it got, it got approved. No, no big shock there. Uh, this is happening in Montana. This is happening in the lower 48. This is happening uh, here in New Mexico. 40,000 oil and gas leases given out up near Chaco Canyon. They're going to ruin Chaco. They're going to ruin the surrounding area. They don't care. They're going to frack it. They're going to mine it as fast as they possibly can because if Trump loses, this the, the, the music's going to stop. Like if Things are going to go back to having some semblance of order when it comes to the environment. Now, if Trump wins again, and I think he has a damn good chance of winning again, it's going to get exponentially worse. They are just going to sell this off. Now, the, one of the questions I've always had for Trump supporters is, for those of you who hunt and fish, how could you possibly vote for this guy? Because all he's doing is destroying the areas that you would hunt and fish. He does not care. To my earlier point, this is a man who's never been off the concrete. He has no, he's, this is the same guy who talked about sweeping the forest when the big fire happened in California and the staff around him just put their hands on their heads and just said, oh my God, like, you know, cut this press conference as fast as possible. He just is completely illiterate when it comes to nature and he never will have an interest. He's never had an interest. He's never been off in a hike. He's never been in a wilderness area. He's just selling it off. He looks at it as a profit margin and says, look, if we can sell all this off, let's sell it off. And obviously, we have a four-year track record to uh, to look at this, going back to the Ryan Zinke reducing the national or national monument sizes. But here's the funny part: most Americans live away from the land now. We are multi generations away from 
people having direct connections to the land. Less than 2% of Americans are involved in farming and ranching. Let me repeat that. Less than 2% of Americans are involved in farming and ranching, which, need, which means 98% of Americans are completely and utterly clueless when it comes to, to the land. And I know this because I see it and hear it every single day. People that don't understand that New Mexico has mountains, people that don't understand that coyotes will not attack and kill you. Um, there's a detachment from the land. So Americans are demanding more than anything else when it comes to national parks. You know what we're demanding? Internet signal. That tells you how detached and how removed we are from actual nature. We would rather, uh, even while we're in nature, we would rather replace it with the screen. That, to me, there's only one word to describe that, which is pathetic. I guess you could throw in lazy and ignorant in there as well, but pathetic, I think, will settle, will we'll work for this particular case. But here's the crazy part. You know where the opposition to the mine in Alaska came from over the past couple of days? Donnie Jr. Don Jr. came out and said, this mine's a bad idea. Um, we shouldn't do this mine. Because, of all things, Don Jr. hunts, right? Now, he hunts like... African game, which I think is just a, a, a travesty. I have no idea why anyone would hunt African game. It just doesn't, as a, as a kid who grew up hunting, whose parents were hunters, um, I can't imagine shooting an Af uh, any African game. It just does not make sense to me. Now, if I was shooting a gazelle or something or an, an ibex or something to feed a village, great. You know, if that was what was required to do that, or if an animal has a gestation period that's so short they'll overpopulate in a short amount of time, then you have to call the herd. That makes sense to me. But shooting an, an elephant, a tiger, a lion, a cheetah, a water buffalo, you know, it just does not make sense to me. I, I, that is a tra tragic flaw, I think, uh, in people, certain people that hunt. But I think Junior looked around and said, you know what, I pro maybe I want to go fishing in this area at some point. And I think that's all it'll take is if Junior says to, to his dad, Dave, don't let the mine go through. We're going to go fish there. He'll stop it. That's as easy. That's that's literally as easy. All it will take is just ah, we'll, we'll stop it. So I just found it really ironic that uh, of all the things that Junior has not done, uh, and that man, that attitude, he is not one of my favorite people. I've never met him, obviously, but um, I'm not. I don't dig the vibe he puts out. But it was interesting to see that he that was, he was pushing back against his father opening the mind. Okay, point number six. We're rolling. We're only 30 minutes in. I've got a call coming up, so I'm, I'm on a clock again. Today, I've got, I don't know how many hours on the phone. And then I've got to make two more films today, and I have to write two pieces this afternoon. So it's going to be a busy day. The Trump interview on Axios, which went down, I guess, less, less than a week ago, sometime in the last week, Trump granted, for God knows what reason, why he would ever grant an interview to anyone is beyond me. But to grant it to uh, Axios, which I, ha and here's, here's my suspicion. Trump is used to being interviewed by television interviewers. And television journalists are not really journalists in my mind anymore. They haven't been for quite some time. And I've got another point here coming up about that in particular. But there, um, and I'll just jump to it right now. I can't watch CNN. I would never watch CNN or read CNN again because I can't stand the way that their, quote, journalists operate. They're so, their views are right on their sleeve. And as a journalist, that is not your role. That's not your position. You're not there to editorialize every single story that comes in. As a television journalist, your primary duty, it seems, is to just read off a teleprompter what somebody else has written for you. But they still claim to be journalists. And it's not that they weren't journalists in the past or they haven't done journalistic-style stories. 
But now it's just an embarrassment. So CNN d- did a story about Anderson Cooper, his new baby, and how the dog is adopting to this to the scenario. That's embarrassing to me. That is so embarrassing. And for somebody who studied journalism, that is like a dagger in the heart because that is th- that is so completely and utterly uncalled for. And I'm not I don't dislike Anderson Cooper. It's the editorial policy of the of the CNN itself. Why on earth would you do that story? Do you realize how bad it makes your network look? It is so trivial with all the shit happening today with, let's say, what happened in Beirut. And let's all take a second to a moment of silence here for our, our Lebanese brothers and sisters. What a nightmare that is with the explosion in Lebanon. Really sad to see that happen. Lebanon is happening. The, the rigging of the election is happening. The coronavirus is happening. Uh, the debacle that is American politics is happening. The, the Black Lives Matter racial injustice in America. And CNN runs a story about Anderson Cooper's dog. That is embarrassing. Okay, I digress. Let me go back to the previous point, which is about Trump's interview. So I think Trump is so used to being interviewed by these television reporters who really are not good. They have very poor interview skills. They don't ask follow-up questions. They don't ask tough tough questions. They don't seem to do their research particularly well. Um, You know, Chris Wallace on Fox asked him a couple of difficult questions that he, Trump fumbled and lied and, you know, did what he normally does. He's probably the single worst interview I've ever seen in American public life other than the fact that they're so bad that you can't stop watching because you cannot wait for the next question because you know it's going to be worse than the one before. The Axios interview proved something in my mind, which was very apparent all along. And I've talked about journalism many times on this podcast. Print journalists don't mess around. Print journalists never get the credit because they're not fancy and they're not on television and they're not celebrities. But they're journalists, right? They know how to do an interview, and they know how to ask a follow-up question, and they do their data. They do their research. So Trump immediately starts to dig his own grave. And it is so—that interview, potentially to me, is the single most—it's not—I don't think it'll be embarrassing for Trump. I don't think he would allow himself to be embarrassed. But if you're a Republican, and you're supporting him, and you have ties to that party, and that's your guy— That was truly embarrassing because as a human being, it was embarrassing. Not only his vocabulary, his limited speech ability, his lack of knowledge, his lack of preparedness, his callousness, everything. But that's not my point. We all know that. We've had four years of him. There's nothing new happening in terms of Trump, you know, putting his foot in his mouth. But it was how the print journalist handled the interview. And I think to me, print journalism, good print journalism— and Axios, I don't really know that much about. I have it bookmarked on my phone, and I would say once a month I take a look at Axios. So again, I'm no expert on Axios, but the print the print media world is getting is getting shellacked right now from every single angle and corporations and budget cuts and you know corporations and ownership telling them what they can and can't print. But print journalism is a really important part of our culture, and I think that interview shined a light back on what I'm talking about here, that the television folks are never going to do it. Okay, let's move on. Point number seven slash eight slash point five point point two. Let's see here. Um, I'm going to skip it. I'm going to go to point nine, which is about celebrities and COVID. Uh, This is pretty amazing that so we, in America, and I'm sure it's the same in other parts of the world. I'm sure Asia has, you know, Asia has their own set of celebrities. Europe has celebrities. Latin America has celebrities. Shakira, for example, which, by the way, if you're going to have a Latin American celebrity, Shakira would be at the top of my list for obvious reasons. 
And there's a lot of others in Latin America. I mean, come on. Um, how about uh, Comandante Marcos from the Zapatistas? Remember him with the mask and the pipe? When I was coming up as a photojournalist, oh man, I wanted to go photograph the Zapatistas so bad. Okay, I digress. But here in America, we put celebrities above everyone else, right? You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger runs for governor in, in California, he wins, right? Because people are like, oh, it's the Terminator, that's really cool. Didn't matter what his policies were, didn't matter what he did on the job, didn't matter his success record, his policy, nothing. It was how cool would it be if the Terminator was governor? That is literally the conversation that people had. Ronald Reagan was president. He was a B actor. You know, people are like, oh, cool. We have an actor in the White House. So celebrities are leading the way with the conspiracy theories in regards to COVID. And what I think is interesting about COVID now, and I, what I think the internet has done to us, and it's very obvious at this point, is that whatever your feelings are about COVID, for example, it's terrible. It's deadly. I've got to be careful as example one. Example two could be, I think it's bad, but it's not as bad as they're claiming, um, but I'll still be careful. And number three could be, I think it's just like the flu. Um, I think everyone is lying. Uh, I've got my own thing, my own theory, because I watched a podcast, right? And so the, the internet will provide you whatever narrative you want to read. If, that is, if you're thinking this is the flu, I watched a podcast, I have antibodies that last for the rest of my life. Uh, this is going to miraculously disappear. You can find it. There'll be a book, a podcast, uh, a television program, and an interview that will tell you what you want to know. But celebrities in particular in America have a massive amount of influence. Massive. Madonna, for example, has been coming up with, apparently, coming up with these allegedly cockamamie theories about there being a vaccine already, but it's being hidden from the public for whatever reason. Uh, very interesting conversation I had last night with someone who is a very, very key player in one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the history of the world, um, who knows a fair amount about vaccines and pharmacology. I had, a, I had uh, drinks with him last night. Uh, this whole idea of the vaccine coming quickly and being effective is kind of a pipe dream. So I hope everybody realizes that uh, this pro the odds of this happening are not good, uh, not only in terms of effectiveness, but having a vaccine that would last long enough uh, a vaccine that wouldn't require a second dose, being able to deliver 300 million doses here in America alone, then the anti-vax movement. We're looking at a long... I, I, I made the suggestion last night that we were in for, you know, the next two years are going to be offset here in the U.S. based on corona. And uh, his my friend's point was, yeah, we're, we're in this for the long haul. This is going to be around for a long time. Don't don't think the vaccine's going to take it away. But But America, just let me be the first to say, the last people on earth you should ever take any advice from are celebrities, unless you're talking about acting, music, or how to deal with being uh, in, the, in the spotlight. You know, like if you said, if you had a task where you're like, I need to know what it's like to have to hide from a crowd of rabid fans, absolutely. Go talk to Madonna. Go talk to Brad Pitt. Go talk to Idris Elba and say, dude, how do you get away from hordes of people that are trying to get you? Those would be really good. But when it comes to politics, science, health, etc., don't listen to celebrities, okay? I can't believe I have to say this, but um, they don't have your best interest at heart. If you're looking for a group of people who do less with more, you'll never find a group better than, the, than celebrities. Um, they just, uh, they're in their own world. And why on earth would I ever vote for a politician backed by celebrities? Because celebrities live in a bubble that is unlike anything that resembles my life. So why would I take their political point of views or their ideas about COVID-19? Makes no sense. 
Sorry about that, but um, we're in America here. We're in, we're in kind of a tight spot here. Okay, uh, I've mentioned this before. Uh, I have, I'm, you know my thoughts on social media. I'm not a social media fan. I've seen it ruin tons and tons of photographers. Uh, I've seen it homogenize the industry. I've seen it devalue photography, et cetera. I don't, and I don't like the parent companies, all kinds of stuff. But I also work for a company that uses social media, so I have to wear two hats. I have to wear a personal hat, and I took that hat off six years ago and just said I don't want to do this anymore. Um, but as a as my other hat, as a Blurb employee, I'm going to have to do social. That's just a part of the job. And I'm, I'm not going to be a jerk and refuse to do it. That's part of my job responsibility. I have to do it. Um, but I had, I had to go on Twitter the other day. And oh my God, it was embarrassing. I literally physically felt bad on Twitter for photographers because it was so embarrassing to watch what was happening it was photographers complaining about the industry, which is not new. That happens all the time. It was photographers waxing on their, on their political views, which was just equally as alarming. And just kind of like on talking nonstop about inconsequential materials and things. And so here's what I did. I went back and some of these people I, that were sort of I would call the worst offenders, I went to their feeds and I looked back over what they were – what how frequently they had posted – and what they were posting about. And it was just the biggest cluster beep on the planet. They're on Twitter all day long, all day, all night, pouring out personal things, pouring out political things, pouring out industry things, and then doing little bad, like, I don't even, I don't know what to call little hooks to try to get people to engage with them by asking questions. And just, it was so embarrassing. And I just signed off of it and said, oh my God, I hope no one ever asked me to use this platform again. I can't, it was just like, it wasn't nails on a chalkboard. It was sadness. It was, it was pity, really. I, I really felt bad for the photographers on there, which I know is not the intention of Twitter. Twitter was not designed for me to feel bad about photographers, but that's what was happening. So holy crap, if you're doing that, just stop doing it. Because I guarantee if, I'm, if I look at it and feel that way, there's a lot of people looking at it and feeling that way, and it's not helping you. What you should do is delete the account and take every single minute of that day that you were spending on Twitter and put it towards learning how to be a better photographer. Like study the history, go buy a book, listen to a podcast, um, do something that would help as being a photographer and not spilling out these idiotic views. Okay. Uh, So there's been a lot of stories as of late. This is point number 11. A lot of stories as of late about billionaires and and let's just throw multimillionaires in there as well and about them paying right? So I think there's two schools of thought here on people that have wealth. There's, I think a lot of times people want to basically delegitimize people that have wealth. And certainly I'm not in that category and I probably never will be. But if I could somehow be a multimillionaire or a billionaire, I would take it in a heartbeat. And I think most of you know enough about me if you've listened to this podcast to know that I would not be like buying giant houses and sports cars and stuff. My life would change a little bit um, I would buy the roof rack for the van, and I would buy new components for my bicycle, which are Shimano GRX is what I would buy with the low-geared 2x10, um, I think is what it is. Uh, it's expensive. I probably will not buy that now because as of today, this morning, I am not a multimillionaire or billionaire, so I will probably put a new chain and maybe some new rear cogs on the SRAM set that I already have. Also, Apex 7 2x10 two, two or X7 2x10. Uh, but... 
I think there's a there's a a movement in America to like delegitimize people of wealth. And yes, there are people. Donald Trump, for example, and and I was not going to use him as an example. He's just what popped into my head. His father gave him apparently something like sixty million dollars to start out. Yeah, okay, that's a little egregious. I'll I'll admit. I know personally know people who are billionaires who did not inherit that, who came from their salt-of-the-earth people. They worked their asses off. They came up. They made boat tons of money because they worked their ass off. They educated themselves as best as possible. They worked their way through school. They did not go to particularly good schools or Ivy League. They were just grinders, and they were smart, and they were driven, and they were focused, and they made billions. They share a lot of money. They're philanthropic. Now, their political views in this in some of these cases are polar opposites of mine. They have very strange religion-based uh, ideals that sort of s- steer and skew their politics, which I don't agree with. But as human beings, they're salt-of-the-earth people. I don't fault them for being billionaires. And I also don't say automatically, hey, you made all that money, then you owe me a bunch of money. You have to pay for me. And I think we have to be very careful about this, about not turning the tide against people who have, who have really like manufactured their lives into being wealthy. And not all billionaires are terrible people. Not all billionaires are um, not sharing their wealth. Not all billionaires are not paying their fair share. I think that's a very dangerous game to play um, to do that. Now, I do think we have to change the tax code. I think the wealthy have been given a break for a long, long time. And I think tax cuts for the wealthy have been snuck in to basically every piece of legislation possible over the, my entire lifetime. It's just gotten worse and worse and worse. You've got dark money in politics, thanks to the Clintons. And that's a disaster happening as well. Um, all these, th- these things need reform, just like we need police reform amid, amongst many other kinds of things. But I think we have to be careful about about saying just because you're wealthy, you owe all of us X or whatever. And I just see in, in he, I've heard this in conversation many times over the last four years in particular. And I don't know. How do you feel about that? Like I look at my friends who've made that money the hard way and I'm like, I what right do I have to tell this person, hey, you were smarter than I was. And here's the legitimate truth. These people worked harder than me. They educated themselves better than I educated myself. They came from less than I did. So technically, if you're looking at this as a mathematical equation, they were better than me. They are better than me. They're more intelligent, more driven, more well-rounded, and more savvy. And so what right do I have to say, look, dude, you made all that money. Um, Pay me. I need a percentage of that. You have to pay more because you were smarter than me. You were better than I. It's a weird thing. It's a slippery slope. I don't know the perfect solution, but I just find it weird when I have friends that lash out at people that have made money, assuming that everyone just was handed this golden egg. And oh my God, if you gave me a golden egg, I would, I would eat half of it now. And then I would file the other half away and I would buy a lot of sneakers. I would buy really expensive sneakers with gold inlay, but that's me. Uh, okay. I think I've talked about this before. This is point 12. We've still got 15 minutes here, people. Uh, I want to talk about something, which is, I feel, I don't think this is going to change anytime soon, but I thought about this the other day. This is a, this is a sort of retreat into two things, photography, lifestyle, three things, photography, lifestyle, and multitasking. So if I think back, I remember where I was when I sent my first text message. I was in the back seat of a car 
a Peugeot 306. I think that's what they're called, 305. It's the little two-door hatchback Peugeot five-speed manual, dark green, driven by my friend Giovanni. I was in Sicily. I had a, I had a Motorola flip phone that was the itty-bitty one that was like two inch, three inches tall, an inch wide. Uh, it was tiny. It fit, literally fit in the palm of my hand. And I didn't know what a text message was. And Giovanni said, hey, can you reach out to so-and-so? And I said, what's the telephone number? And he goes, no, 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 no. We don't use our phones as phones. We text. And I was like, huh? What's a text? And so I sent my first text message. From that second on, my life changed dramatically as a photographer because now suddenly I was connected. I was connected through technology to other people while I was trying to be a photographer. Now, this trip in particular... I was staying in a farmhouse, I should say we, my wife and I, and a third person who was a photographer was also at the farmhouse. And this was a farmhouse in rural Sicily that would probably have slept 10 or 12 people, made out of stone, absolutely incredible frescoes on the ceilings, in the bedrooms, in the living room. There was a chapel with frescoes on the property. Uh, it was sort of like an inactive farm. There were you know, farm workers around and tractors and people and stuff, but we were sort of out in the middle of nowhere, and this was a private residence that a buddy of mine knew about and got permission, uh, permission from the owners for us to rent it from them, and it was in a strategic location. So suddenly I have this flip phone and I'm texting, right? But, but it was very, very limited. I don't think it ever really started to creep into my subconscious in that, that point. But the photographer that we were with was shooting digital. And I rem distinctly remember we would come back at the end of the day from shooting and we would make dinner. And they had this great kitchen and we'd go down to the, the little village and buy like chicken and, and, and eggs and, you know, fruit and vegetables and stuff that were from the neighboring fields, not fruit, but vegetables and and we would go back and cook all this fresh food. And there was a turntable. And there were Dylan records and Miles Davis records. And I remember cooking and playing the records and writing in my journal. And the other photographer spent the vast majority of the time on the computer. Because digital was a new lifestyle. Digital was not about enjoying where you were. Digital was about real-time engagement. Downloading, editing, sorting, uh, transmitting, so, and then putting it out immediately. And I just remember thinking to myself and having something in the back of my subconscious say, ooh, that does not look fun to me. And I still feel exactly the same way today. I look at it and think, God, that's not fun at all. But here's the rub. Here's the one layer that I can't, I think is completely unfair to photographers. And I think that is why the quality bar has just fallen off so dramatically. And it's not to say there isn't good, good work being done. There is. But if you are a photojournalist and you are in the field trying to do a story, whether you're doing something with a time element, a news element, let's say you're covering the Beirut situation right now. If you have to do multiple things at the same time, if you have to shoot and text and post to social and engage with the people on social media, there is, it, is, it is an impossibility for you to make your best work. You are making average work across multi-channels. I don't know a single person who does this well. I don't know a single person who makes world-class documentary work and world-class social media and world-class texting and communication at the same time. What's happened is the quality bar and the definition of world-class has fallen. I just saw 
and a really well-known photojournalist over the past few days, I've been watching a, a recent project of his unfold online. And I'm saying it's average at best. The work is average. It is not good. There is nothing unique about it. There is nothing differentiating about it. Nothing. But it is getting a deluge of time and attention on social media, and it is completely undeserving. That is the harsh reality. That's the tough love and truth. That is not something you are going to hear people say in the industry. I would never name this person. That would that that's spiteful, and there's no. I don't think anything good would come from that. And and I think this person is actually a really good human being and has produced really good work in the past. But the point is, it is impo- It is an impossibility for this person to operate at world class level across multi channels. That is not how it works. I am hoping at some point in the near future that someone will publicly address this. Hopefully at something in the industry. A photo festival would be a great place to have a panel about this and say, let's quit pretending. Let's quit playing along with editors and agents and art buyers and industry people who've needed to like dumb this down to keep themselves going. Let's have a discussion or let's do a test. Let's send two correspondents to the same story. One that has no, has no responsibility other than making the best possible still photographs they can, and the other has to shoot stills and write captions and do social and text and follow everything on their phone while they're in the process of doing this. And oh, by the way, let's have them shoot motion as well and record sound, which is now falling on a responsibility that's falling on a lot of people. Look, I can say for myself in particular, now that I'm making films, when I go in the field now to do stuff for Blurb, my still photography is an afterthought. I'm trying to like tr- move tripods and keep cameras straight and make sure my audio is working. I'm recording sound. I'm writing scripts. I'm doing the motion. I'm shooting stills. I'm doing the editing. I'm doing the transmitting. I can't do all of that well. I just can't. It's impossible. When I'm in the field making motion, I don't even think about stills because I can't make good stills in the process of that. How many times have I seen YouTubers doing photography films and the stills suck? Well, that's why. You can't do anything. By the way, on a side note, I'm going to take some credit for something. There's a bunch of hipster YouTubers now that are suddenly talking about print, number one, and suddenly they're talking about other photographers. Oh, yeah. I think I'm taking credit for that. I think it's because they saw my films where I'm like highlighting other photographers and talking about print, and suddenly they're like, hey, I think I can get some followers by doing that. And so, boom, it's happening, which is good. I'm taking credit, but as long as people are into print and talking about other people, I think that's a good thing. All right, moving on. What what else do we need? Okay, a little a little camera thing here, really quickly. Um, this is about sponsorship. I've talked about this before, and I'm doing two films today. One is a general Q and A, and one is a print Q and A. And I'm going to start each one of these films with the same topic because I get asked this probably 20 times a month, which is why are you not sponsored? Now, that question always comes open-ended. It could be, why do you not have a bicycle sponsor or a backpacking sponsor, whatever. I think primarily what people are asking is why I don't have a camera sponsorship. And I have a list. I think I have five or six uh, reasons listed out that I'm going to go over. Uh, But there's a lot of reasons why I'm not sponsored. I am not a good person to sponsor. It doesn't make sense to sponsor me. Um, And I shoot my current digital camera setup right now is the Fuji system, which my cameras are four years old. So yeah, that's not doesn't bode well to, for me to be sponsored when I'm using a camera that's four years old. They want you to use whatever the latest, greatest thing is. Um, but the, the truth is, too, I need a camera that Fuji doesn't make. 
And so I have to look around. I have friends at, at uh, a lot of different camera companies around the world, fewer and fewer as we go, because a lot of people are getting laid off, sadly. Um, but I need a small, stabilized, handheld motion cam with a good mic. And as far as I know, Fuji does not make one of those. And so I have to look elsewhere. Sony is probably what I'm going to end up with. So I know Sony has some small new thing they came out with. I don't know what it's called, but I'm sure if it works for vloggers all over the world, it's probably going to work for me. And Fuji doesn't make it. So if you're sponsored, that's not a good thing. Fuji's going to say, why'd you buy a Sony if, I'm, if you're using Fuji and we're sponsoring you? Um, I know photographers who were sponsored by camera companies, paper companies, printer companies, software companies. And I'm talking about one photographer sponsored by all these. I know photographers whose entire studio is filled with sponsored equipment. Monitors, software, calibrators, computers, cameras, printers, paper, everything is paid for. And they are sponsored and they are getting paid. It is not just, hey, use our gear. They are all in. They can get anything they want from anyone at any time. I know fewer and fewer of these people and all of these people are older than I am. So that should tell you something. But I need something small. Um, and Fuji doesn't make it. So I got to look elsewhere because I have a need. I'm doing motion is now much more a part of my job. It's not something that I would probably do on my own if it wasn't for my job. I, I know enough about it now to know I would probably not do it. Um, but I have to. So I may look for um, something small. Uh, and if you listen to my Q&As later from today, you will get a much more in-depth thing about this. And also about equipment in general and sponsors and the sort of sponsors that I look to for advice. And in fact, I just met with someone who um, gave me one sentence of advice about a camera and it was all I needed to know. I said, okay, I, don't, I can't use that camera because they told me one thing. Um, and I trust this person because they're really good. And so uh, more on that later. Uh, okay. Let's, I'm almost getting done here. I'm going to skip over my take on what's going to happen on the November election and I'm going to go to Banksy. Uh, this is something that, so I have a lot of friends who are in the creative world, a lot of artists. I'm just going to throw all creative people under the title of artists just to simplify for this point. One of the things that drives me crazy is the gallery situation with artists in general. Most of the time, when I have discussions about artists and their gallery relationships, they are disappointed, frustrated with the gallery. And I and I always and I've had conversations that I can't go into detail about that are so mind-blowingly confusing about, for example, photographer A or artist A will say, Well, I have to have a gallery. If I don't have a gallery, then the collectors will blackball me and they will not collect my work. And my response is always, that's not true. Now, in subsequent conversations, there's all kinds of weird hypocrisy and oddness that that surround these conversations and a lot of these people are very successful artists and they're still frustrated and my point is always reinvent 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 you have to reinvent this model the gallery model of them taking 40 to 60 percent of your commission not showing your work you have to be with them because their collectors won't collect from you if you're not with them but they won't show you and all this like just i can't imagine if you brought intelligent life down and brought him here to New Mexico and said, hey, this is on, we're on Earth. This is, hi, I'm Dan. Um, and this is a gallery. And this is how it works. The intelligent life would get back in their ship and fly away and say, that's probably the worst business model I've ever seen. So the name that jumps out at me, I think that personifies the idea to go in this opposite direction, especially for the first nine-tenths of his career, is Banksy. 
And Banksy started as a graffiti artist and then sort of transferred, translated, transformed into a, I don't even know what you would call him. He's, a, he's an international art sensation. His identity is still unknown. But Banksy and his, and his agent, if you will, who's a longtime friend, you know, basically were, they despised the art world. They looked at those quiet white-walled galleries and one-percenters and elitists and people buying art for investment and not for the art itself and the exclusivity and the racism and everything that's in the gallery world. And they were like, you know, basically, go away. We don't want you. We don't need you. And Banksy has gone on to, to, since then, has really turned the art world inside out because he has forced the art world to pay attention to things like street art. But I think for you photographers out there who are going down this traditional path and are, are struggling, Banksy is somebody whose name you should cut out and tack on the top of your computer so that you, can, you have to stare at that name every single day. Now, the odds of you becoming, or me, for example, if I was still trying to be a photographer, the odds of me becoming a Banksy are almost zero. But that's not the point. The point is the mindset of saying, I will not allow myself to be corralled. I don't want a saddle on my back from the art world, which has to be the most fickle group of people I have ever seen. Every time we're watching a movie or television show with my, my wife and I, and there's something to do with the art world, I always groan. And my wife is like, you know, she's astounded my disdain for the sort of art community. And again, I'm no art. I'm not, for number one, I'm not an artist. I'm not an expert on the community. I don't spend every waking moment going to galleries and museums. I'd much rather, if I go to a new city, if I go to Lisbon, I'm going to be on the street. I don't, I will, yes, I'll probably go to a museum. Uh, I may go to a gallery, but I don't go there specifically to go to these art institutions because they drive me crazy. I've never felt at home in these places. Some are better than others. Um, I do love natural history museums, that for sure, as opposed to art museums and as opposed to art galleries. So Banksy to me is very inspiring. And the and the sort of, I, don't, I can't call them disciples, but the offshoots of Banksy, and he was not the first to do this kind of thing. He's the first to do some of the things that he's doing for sure. And he's certainly been, he exploded on a level that I don't think anyone else has quite matched. But that to me was, I think of him and I think there's hope. Right, because you can re you can write your own rules and you can create your own weather system, and that's to me the future of the creative space. Because I see the conformity of the industry, and the dumbing down of the industry is going to be the downfall of the industry itself, and I think we can see that happening right now. Okay, uh, just a quick point here about Trump. The, a lot of the lefty media was talking about they were just shocked at his comments about John Lewis and the fact that he didn't go to the funeral. But here's the thing. I just want to, for any of the lefty media, media people out there, you saw the interview with Axios, okay? You can't put Trump at John Lewis's funeral. You cannot. His handlers know you cannot put him anywhere near that event because it will be scorched earth. He will do and say every single thing that you are not supposed to do and say. He cannot help himself. So there should not be media incredulousness incredulity, did I make up a word, about Trump not speaking about John Lewis or going to the funeral. That You could see that from outer space, right? Ain't happening. Uh, it's just not in him. Uh, let's see. Okay, uh, I think that could be the last point. I've got others I could do here, but I think I might end it there. That is an hour. Uh, my name's Dewey Oxberger, and as you can see, I have a slight weight problem. Um, please tell me you know that movie reference.
anyone who writes in in the comments and knows that movie reference, you will get absolutely nothing other than my deepest respect. So, oh, by the way, uh, last thing I will say is I did order tires for the van, and I did get BFG KO2s. Um, and I, some of you wrote me and some of you called me about tire recommendations. All good. I looked all of them up, and they are all solid. Um, and again, I, I was looking at um, General Grabbers. I was looking at, at Cooper AT3s. I was looking at Nitto Ridge Grapplers. I was looking at, uh, and I went back to KO2s. And here's the funny thing about KO2s on the van. So I called Discount Tire, which I've been buying tires at for decades, literally from here to California. And um, the guy answers the phone and I said, yeah, I got a ProMaster and I'm going to take off the street tires and put on KO2s. And I said, oh, you know, I've had these on every truck I've ever had. I can't wait to do this. And the, and the guy on the end of the phone was so excited. And he goes, oh my God, the KO2s, they're just amazing. They're six plied on the sidewalls and you can do this and that. And they're LT tires and that to me is why I love KO2s is that the guy at discount tire won't stop talking about how excited he is that I'm putting KO2s on the van, which is really funny. But tire people, anyone who's still on this podcast, that's still intrigued by tires. We're related in some way, shape or form, because most people just don't care about what tires are on their car. Uh, but we do because we know how nice it is to feel like, okay, cool. I can go down that road and I don't have to worry about flatting out here in the middle of nowhere with a crappy little jack trying to lift up the front end of a, of a ProMaster van. So anyway, those should be here sometime this week. And uh, I've got to do a couple more films today. Uh, I have to do two films. And I have another call in 24 minutes, uh, and then another call after that, and then another call after that, and then I will do the films if I can. One take, baby, all the way. Uh, thank you for tuning in, and uh, I will see you next week.